2: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: The year is
3: 1998. And... Uh, hold on. Hello? Hey, Amy, just want to tell you that at the end of this podcast, you're going like, to totally die. Bye!
1: Oh, I'm going to get to the bottom of this and figure that out. Nightmare. Uh, the movie, The Ring. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to uns- Unspooled. <laughs> I'm Amy Nicholson.
3: And I'm Paul Scheer, and this is the podcast where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we're sending them to outer space. This is the end of our horror month, and we are wrapping it up with a Japanese horror cult classic that became international phenomenon, Ringu. Uh, And Amy, I'm excited to talk about this movie because this is a movie that I feel like I first was really connected to through pop culture, like stuff like Scary Movie and literally prank shows that recreated the scariest scene of this movie for fun as if we all knew this thing. Like, this is the the thing. Like, this is our Mike Myers. This is our our Freddy or our Jason.
1: Yeah, I feel like Ringo, at least in my own personal experience with it, is a movie that crept up on me without me getting to see it. I was aware of what was happening for a very long time before anybody in America was allowed to watch this movie.
3: Yeah, it was kind of one of those things that the way like an urban legend travels like we you hear about it. And so you're excited to see it like the concept isn't new, but it is interesting to watch because I do think that this movie does something to horror that then sets off um, a chain of events that I think changes horror, gets us out of the slasher film and into something that is a little bit more grounded and a little bit more emotional, internal. And I think you could draw a real comparison to this film and and Blair Witch. And we'll get into a lot of that in this episode. But really, I think at the end of the day, the question will be, is it good? Is it scary? Or is the premise just interesting?
1: I am excited to tear into this with you because honestly, I think Sadako might come after me.
3: Shall we? (laughs) Let's unspool it. The year is 1998. And Microsoft becomes the biggest company in the world, valued at $261 billion, which ultimately leads the way for Steve Ballmer to buy the Clippers, but we can get into that later. Uh, Good Friday agreements are reached between the UK, Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland. And this is the year that Bill Clinton coined the famous phrase, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Yeah, yeah. Check out my amazing Clinton. Significant firsts include Google. Happened this year, my God. The Apple iMac, so beautiful. And Viagra. Oh, wow. Put that all together. That's a party. Uh, the hot films of the year are Goodwill Hunting, Armageddon, Saving Private Ryan, Blade, and today's film, Ringu. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And uh, what was on the radio in 1998?
1: Ringu. It is directed by Hideo Nakata. It is written by Hiroshi Takahashi from the 1997 novel by Koji Suzuki that was already very, very well known uh, in Japan by the time this film came out. It is the story of a cursed videotape. First, you watch the tape, Then you get a mysterious phone call. Then, seven days later, you die. How and from what and why? These are the questions that drive a journalist named Reiko when she begins to investigate a string of two coincidental teen deaths. Questions that become personal to her when she watches the tape, then her ex-husband watches the tape, and then their young son watches the tape. The clues point her to an angry, powerful, dead girl named Sadako, the creeping, white-gowned, long, black hair-in-her-face girl who will become a horror icon and ripped off endlessly. Reiko is played by Nanaka Matsushima. Uh, Ryuji, her husband, her ex-husband, is played by Hiroyuki Sanada. Uh, Their son is played by Rikia Otaka. And Sadako herself is played by Rie Ino. Uh, She was a dancer. She was a a kabuki performer. She did not really give an interview, so we don't know much about her except that she is a creepy icon. And now, take a listen to the creepy tape itself. Ringu was never released in theaters in the States. Uh, Like the movie, you had to know about it and track down the creepy videotape. I remember this period. I had heard about Ringu long before I finally got to see it. And actually, the movie was only made easily accessible in 2003, right after Hollywood made its own version, starring Naomi Watts as the journalist desperate to escape Sadako, release Sadako. And that means finding Sadako, understanding Sadako, holding Sadako's skeleton in her hands and saying, I understand the pain, Sadako, in your dreamlike video message. Kind of like the dance track on the radio the day the film opened in Japan on January 31st, 1998, Janet Jackson and Together Again.
3: such a baller. <laughs> I mean, is it a song to Sadako?
1: You know, maybe if she'd been alive, she would have she jammed out to it.
3: <laughs> you know, Amy, this is an interesting movie because, like, it really has been another cultural touchstone. And I never saw the original. And I was so impressed with how lean it is. Very much like Halloween, this is a movie that is incredibly straightforward and I wouldn't even classify it as a horror film. It, it feels to me like, um, like an investigative thriller, you know, it, it feels like, like it feels more similar to, it feels more similar to Zodiac than it does to like a slasher film. And I think the way that we now envision the ring, the ring is, you know, this really scary girl coming out of the TV and, you know. That only really happens at the very, very end.
1: Yeah, that's true. This is a movie without that much death. You have the opening death, which feels almost kind of like the opening death in Scream. You know, like girls in the house getting phone calls. A very tight little mini horror story, which I love. I think the two girls who play the two teen girls at the beginning of this movie are just awesome. Um, Their names are uh, Yuku Takuchi and Hitomi Sato. They're very fun. I I think they're just amazing. But then, yeah, it turns into this investigation movie, which I think in a way makes it both an interesting circular follow-up to talking about Halloween and also in a way an antagonist to Halloween. Like if Halloween is a movie that's all about here is the unknown, here is the shape, here is death creeping to you and we can't really explain it and we can't really stop it and we don't know what's happening. The whole thrust of Ringu is... We can figure this out. We must figure this out. We're going to figure it out. Here we go doing the research. It's kind of an inversion in that
3: way. I think what I find so interesting, though, is the mythology of this movie, besides the opening idea that if you watch the tape, you'll die, where it goes and what it means and how to avoid it really come in as a postscript to the movie in, in, in essentially like V.O., I've never seen that done. You know, it's like, oh, we figured it out and now the movie ends, like it and I think it's a perfect ending, but it it really flips the script on what horror films are. There's no defeating this evil besides pawning it off on someone else,
1: which also is creepy and I cannot wait to dig into that further with you. But yeah, I mean, to your point like this movie feels like it was framed as a ghost story, but it's really scene to scene like a, a technology story. You know, how can we find out this information? Let's spend a lot of time with, with you know, microfiche. You know, we are journalists, or at least uh, the, the lead is a journalist, so she can figure things out, track them down in a way that nobody else has clearly bothered to do. And And it's kind of, to me, a little strange that way. Like, it's it's so flat-footed in, in just the approach to how they're going to do it. Like, here's what we're solving. We're going to go straight out of it. And I have to admit, I always get kind of tripped up by the backstory and by all of this. Because as soon as they start saying like, oh, there was this woman and she died 40 years ago and she threw herself into a volcano. I don't know if you felt this way. I was like, then what is she doing on a VHS tape? Like, she didn't know about right. a VHS tape. And it really throws me off. I, I have a very hard time
3: with it. Well, yeah, it's it's like, who's taping this? Is this real? Is this the spirit world imprinting on VHS tapes? And, you know, what gets me about this, kind of going back to the Hellraiser of it all, is you bring it on yourself unintentionally. And it makes it, uh, like, it's so frustrating in a way. <laughs> right? Because it's like, you didn't mean to do it. Like when the kid watches it, like you didn't mean to do it. Don't punish. Like there's so much tragedy in this world to to just accidentally stumble into a, a curse of a, a ghost serial killer just seems like, ah, oh, what bad luck. What absolutely bad luck. <laughs> and uh, and I just don't understand why no one is smashing that tape, why no one is breaking that tape. like they, And I think it's an interesting film in the sense that it respects the tape. There's a respect to that tape uh, in a way that I find really interesting where, you know, you could you could tell the American attitude to be like, throw that in the fucking trash. Get that out of here. Like, I you know, I want to I, like I destroy the thing that's hurt me, but they use it as an artifact and they use it to research and they use it to kind of, uh, you know, find ways to like approach this problem. Like, I think it's a very analytical and not an emotional response. And I think that's the interesting thing. Horror movies are so based on like, oh my God, he's coming. Ah, ah, ah. And there are those moments of fear, but this movie is much more like, okay, think about it. What does that mean? How do we do this? It's it's so much more like, um, you know, like all the president's men in a way.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's very procedural. And I think because it's so procedural, that's when the stuff that seems mystical Freaks me out. I'm like, wait, how does that fit in? I mean, I'm fascinated by things like, you know, in the score, when when she goes to the cabin, when she... you know, Okay, because first, plot-wise, she's like, she finds out that, you know, her son's cousin died, her niece. Her niece is the person who dies in the opening scene. She's already on this case of like, why are these kids dying? I've heard this rumor. And it kind of feels like she's investigating it almost like a human interest story. Like, hey, look, what are these teenagers up to? What's this story that they're talking about? You know... It's probably not true, but let's just interview them all about it anyways. And, and I think that kind of section of the movie is really fun. It's like the first third of this movie is almost like the secret lives of teenagers. What are they doing that adults don't know about? Why are they going out into cabins? What's happening? It's almost like, you know, if the, if if Halloween was really about Loomis figuring out what all these kids have been doing the night they got killed or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like if it came like after the fact. Um But yeah, so she goes to this cabin where she can see that the kids were because of these photographs that she found, this like ticket that she takes and goes and picks up the photographs. And when she looks at this whole shelf of VHS tapes, you get this mystical evil sound. It's like she magically knows which tape is the tape.
3: I was wondering about that because I was like, maybe I just can't read. I felt like there was a couple of times in this film where am I missing something like the writing on the board, uh, on the chalkboard? Am I I missing something in here? Am I missing something on the tape that looks different than everything else? You know, because you really can't subtitle that. But just visually, that tape looks the same, right? I mean, it doesn't stand out in any way.
1: Well, it's like the only one that's not labeled, but I don't. Okay. But that doesn't seem too that's scary enough. to me. I mean, I did freeze frame it and I was like, what other tapes are there? Like, what are teenagers at cabins watching
3: in Japan? I mean, I would say it, less about the teenagers and more about the person who rents out those cabins. Like, what does he think the teenagers are watching? It's like, oh, Gavin, we don't need another. <laughs> we are your fly fishing tape. Come on. No one wants to watch that.
1: He's actually pretty certain. I couldn't read that many of the VHS tapes, but here's some of the ones I read. The the Spooky Cabin, these teenagers also had options of watching The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy, several Indiana Jones films. Oh, wow. Jaws and Duel. Yeah. Mm, Money Pit, 48 Hours Top Gun, The Birds, The Godfather 2 was there, wow! at Tiffany's, Sabrina Trading Places. What I'm saying is these kids had options and they picked the blank tape.
3: Well, because they probably were like, these movies are from my parents. Let me watch this cool, what's not labeled. That's more exciting. Uh, oh, that you is know,
1: such a 90s way of thinking, isn't it?
3: Yeah. It's like, let's go let's go grunge. Let's go indie. They're like, you don't have singles? You don't have Cameron Crowe singles? All right.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right?
3: compelling about this idea. It's something that I love about another franchise, uh, Final Destination, is this idea that death is coming for you. And it's not a man with a knife or a child or a hell demon. Oh, well, I guess maybe hell demon, but like, you're not running from something, right? It's going to come for you. It's going to get you. And that's it. Like, there's nowhere to hide from it, I think. And, and like, Final Destination, what's so fun about that is, like, these giant, like, Rube Goldberg, like, death traps that form because these kids avoided death, and the idea is you can't avoid death, it will come for you, which is a terrible way of looking about uh, surviving a terrible accident. But uh, I like that idea that it's just, like, hanging over them, and, like, the amount of emotional turmoil that can create, like, I think, again, going back to this idea that most horror movies are based in, like, a visceral reaction. This is based much more on a mental anguish, you know, of of what does that do to your body and mind when you know something is coming for you? And it there's no way to defeat it, and the only way to defeat it is to try to figure it out and and try to, like, but there's no, like, okay, all bets are off, you did the thing, because she did... Defeat it without knowing she defeated it, and she still continues on. The only reason why she knows that you know the entire premise of the tape is because she because somebody else dies, right? Like, so I think that that's a really there's a world in which she could never have been alleviated from that if multiple tapes were made or if he made another tape, right? There's a world in which she would always be living underneath this idea, even though she escaped the seven days, I don't know if you'd ever really rest easy unless you know somebody has been taken in your place.
1: I mean, I love that kind of a premise because you're right. It's like, there's two different types of scares that we're talking about. There's, you know, jump scares. Oh no, I'm in a hallway. What's going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. But then there's just large and overwhelming dread. You know, and right. I think dread is like the major emotion of Halloween, but we are the only people feeling it in the audience because they don't know what's happening. None of the kids know what's happening until the very, very end of the movie when Jamie Lee finally has like seven minutes to basically know that Michael Myers is coming for her and run around and escape him as soon as he attacks her. She doesn't get the dread until she finally sees him and nobody else gets the dread because they don't know what's happening. But we, the audience, get the dread because we totally know what's going on. And this movie, too, I think is all based in in dread. You know, the yeah, that seven days. Like, is it worse to know that you have seven days to live than it is to just like go about your business, be boning your boyfriend, send him down, out to get a beer, and then suddenly this guy strangles you with a phone cord? Like, if you had to pick, which one would you pick?
3: Of of just knowing that you're going to die or just happening? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Happening.
1: Just happening? Yeah, I'm with you. I'd rather just happen, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, and I think what makes it worse is the sun, Right, because I think that there's an element that she can ultimately deal with it for herself, but the fact that she knows that her son is potentially next is really like the driving force of this movie, right? Like, you know, her and her ex-husband are, are really, like, I feel like they're not as worried about it coming for them as much as they're worried about can they figure it out before it comes for their son. So there's something very selfless about what they're doing and frantic. It, like, it ups the stakes. It's like, not only is it me, but it's now my son who had nothing to do with it, you know? And and then I guess there is this other element to the movie that's really interesting. You know, you said that she picked out this tape, uh, you know, just she saw it and she picked it out, which seems like her husband should have done that because he's the one who has that, like, sixth sense like he's the one who can kind of see a little bit more but i i I love that these characters even this person who sees you know has this like ability to like sense auras is uh very like buttoned up like he's not like you know in an american movie i feel like he'd be like oh yeah i run a crystal shop and i see all this stuff but he he seems like a like a worker bee
1: yeah i mean i have to admit when that character is like i am psychic Mm mm-hmm I don't, I don't love that part of the movie. I'm like, you're psychic. You're like a scientist, right? You're like a, he's like some sort of chemical engineer, biological engineer, something like that. And, and it's like, oh, we live in a magical world now. Okay. Cause despite the existence of this tape, I want to believe that we're living in this really practical world because the movie seems so practical. You know, the lighting looks really practical. Nothing looks magical. And, and when he says like, I am, I am actually a psychic too. Part of me wants to think like, wait, no, he he's lying. Is he lying? But then he actually does prove to be a psychic. And I just wish he wasn't. I, you know, if, if he was a psychic, like, why doesn't he know not to watch the tape? Maybe that is nitpicky. But what I think is really funny about, about you know, one of the differences between like the Japanese version and the American version with Naomi Watts is that in the version with Naomi Watts, um, this character, he's still there. He's not her ex so much in that movie. He's more just like an ex-boyfriend who got her pregnant and then was like, I'm too immature for this. So she was never married to him. She just raised the boy alone. But he, she turns to him, you know, in the movie, just like this one. And he's like, I want to watch this movie. And she's like, don't watch this tape. Please don't watch this tape. And he insists on watching the tape. And Naomi Watts finally relents and lets him watch the tape. But in, in the Japanese version, and the original, he's like, I'm going to watch the tape. And she doesn't say shit about it. She's just like, okay. Go ahead. And I want to wonder if there's like more hostility in this relationship. If she's kind of okay with this guy dying. Like what is their relationship that she doesn't feel protective of him? Because yeah, absolutely. Like when she just finds out she's cursed, she's like, this sort of sucks. But the first couple days kind of tick by without much drama. And it's like only yeah, when it's their son, does she start to care, but she doesn't seem to feel that much of a concern whether or not this guy
3: really dies. <laughs> <laughs> or
1: did you feel that way? Am I just projecting?
3: Um, I mean, I do believe they had a connection. Like, I was kind of curious about, like, what happened in their world and their marriage that kind of, you know, drove them apart. And, 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 you know, in my mind, I, like, I labeled it as, like, he maybe cheated on her. and And they had this relationship where it's like, oh, I still love you. You still are my husband. I mean, she refers to him as... Her husband at one point, you know, and it's like, I feel like she's not quite over him. And this is an interesting moment to put them together because they work so well together. I feel like they would get back together after this in a way. I feel like they, I don't know. I I, I felt like she I did know. care about him. I feel like she did care about him. I feel like they, it's complicated to put it in a, a, a term that Facebook brought into our lives it's complicated you know it's it's, (laughs) they 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 got some things they don't seem to be at odds they don't seem to be uh incredibly different from a personality standpoint but I feel like there is something there maybe it's too intense for both of them maybe they're not ready for each other yet maybe they need to explore more but I do feel like when push came to shove at the end she's like that's my husband I'm gonna get I that.
1: mean, it's funny, right? Because he's got that like younger girlfriend, you know, one of his students. Like he's a guy who's a professor dating one of his yeah. students. And this I love the student character. You know, um, she sort of shows up. She's very sarcastic. She's like, OK, sir, and messes up like his blackboard. Um, I think she's a really, really funny character. But yeah, it, it, it is like a shift. Like the Naomi Watts version of this of this mother is more like I'm going to be a cool young mom. Like when she tries to talk to the teenagers, one of the first things she does is she's like, I'll take a cigarette. You know, she's like kind of goofy acting in her like determination to be young. And this woman, the Japanese version, I think is like a lot more straight laced. It's not Mm -hmm. so much about like, well, it isn't, I was about to say it's not that it's not so much about her being kind of like a wacky mom or like a busy mom. But then honestly, when you look at her actions, she's a mom who's spending no time with her kid because she's got to run around and save him. But you also get the sense she doesn't spend that much time with her kid anyway. Like her kid, her kid's a strange cat, right? You're around a lot yeah. of kids. How? Yeah. What do
3: you make of this kid? Well, the kid can see shit too. I mean, he's touched. I mean, what we're talking about here too is these misunderstood kids. I mean, that's that's the villain in this. This movie is. You know, based on a child serial killer, Like this child was misunderstood, mistreated, um, and unlike Jason, uh, we got a little flack for our misremembering of Jason, or I should say, Friday the Thirteenth, in our last episode on the Discord. People came at it, uh, but uh, I would say, unlike Jason, this is still wait. A ch- what did they say? <laughs> well, that you like you were saying something about how you know uh, killing virgins or not killing virgins what became a thing and that Friday the 13th took that, but they didn't because the the final girl was somebody who was uh, sleeping around with different people. Not a virgin. Oh. You, know, some, you know, so just a, a little bit of clarity. <laughs> Not enough that it, you know, made me rethink our entire thesis uh, because I think your point was still taken that that idea of the final girl kind of came out of that. But um, I think what's kind of scary here is the power that kids have. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? And this movie... Is interesting because when you look at this child, right, uh, it was based on a real person who was born in 1886 and was rumored to have the gift of foresight. Um, and in 1910, she was proclaimed to be a charlatan and committed suicide a year later by ingesting poison. Right. Um, yeah,
1: it's really similar to this. Like there was like a professor who was having her do these public like experiments, just like in the movie. He like he got expelled too from his like medical for from his like doctoral position.
3: Yeah, and and this idea, and when you're talking about the videotape, right? Like this idea about why, how does the videotape make sense? I think the idea being that her psychic abilities um, include this form of like spirit photography, where she can burn images from their mind into any solid surface by, you know. So this idea that, that like, her memories made, like made her relevant again. So maybe this has been going on for a long time. Maybe it was in a book. I mean, I don't know how that would work with the phone. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like she finds a way to connect with the world a little bit.
1: Yeah, like, well, part of this is, like, in the book, she's not supposed to be an ancient figure. She's mm-hmm. more, like, she's more recent. And, like, they call, they call her like a technopath. And like in the book, it's like more clear that she's like a more modern kid who can project her images on like TVs and videotapes. But I feel like the movie reached also towards this like true historical story and then kind of, to me, screws up the timeline in my head.
3: Uh, I'm sure, again, the premise of the movie, like the true mystical part of the movie, besides the concept, the one liner of watch a tape and die seven days later, is all explained in voiceover in, like, the final shot of the film. Like, it's like, oh, wait, what, what? You know, it's like, we don't have enough time to answer any questions because we think we're just solving the murder of if they find this girl and give her a resting place, the curse will be broken. And so you're following that rule. And at the end, she's like, oh, I made a copy. And what does it mean? Well, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to make a copy over here. I'm going to do that. Like, oh, wow, you're just, like... It's like you're dealing with somebody who's like running out of the house late for the airport. Like, feed the dog, get two cups over here and go over here and then make sure that the bags come here. And then at 7 a.m., the, the postman comes and oh, no, don't worry about that. Like it's like, oh, wow. I'm like, and I feel like you get out and you're just like, oh, that was cool. And you don't have the questions. But I also just want to go back to why kids are scary. To go back to your original question, is this kid scary? I think that kids can be scary to adults because you don't know what they're thinking. And they also left to their own devices, like, like Michael Myers, if not checked in on, maybe are capable of this stuff. Maybe there is a mental health issue going on. And and in the novel, you know, they describe Sadako as an intersex woman, right? So this idea of like being misunderstood in a time where, like a witch or something like that, you know, like what, what is this different thing? What is this, this person doesn't fit in. And like the greatest revenge for a kid is to be able to exact revenge on these adults, these people that are bigger than them, these people that, you know, they like the one thing that kids don't have is sense of, you know, control. Like when I want to do anything, my kids are getting in the car. They're coming with me. They're going over here. It's like every time I was like my entire life growing up, I was like going to Home Depot I was going over. here. I didn't want to do these things. I didn't want to go to the supermarket, but there was no one at home to watch me or not let me go. So I had to go. So this idea that a child could be treated badly by adults and then come in exact revenge, I think is a very deep fear, right? Like that, you know, even though it's like a, a different type of fear, I don't think we're running around afraid of children, but, you know, maybe the idea that like children don't even know what they're fully doing and could they really hurt us? And I don't know. There's something there. And, and if you are like a little bit of an absentee parent, is there this thing? If I don't understand my kid, who is my kid anymore? What are they doing? Like, I feel like there's definitely an element of that with her. Like she doesn't have that bond. Like she doesn't, she does in the sense that she cares for him, but I think that she is a little distant from him. Maybe that's because he has special powers. And maybe this idea of like supernatural powers is just the, a metaphor for, Kids you can't connect with, and I definitely have had that when I've met friends, kids, and stuff. There are certain kids you just can't connect with. Certain kids you like; they're your best friend after like a second. But other kids, you know, not so much.
1: Well, that's sort of also what's weird about this kid, though, is like he's not a creepy kid. I would say in like the language of the movie, you know, like he's not like he's not like creeping
3: around. No, no, but he's he's not like the Babadook kid.
1: Yeah, he's almost wildly the opposite. He's like such a little serious grown up kid. He's like a little baby adult. Like he's so mature. He's mature in a way that, you know, almost makes you feel like, man, this kid has had to raise himself. Like he's so well behaved that I almost think that's where you see his childhood neglect come in. Mm. You know, she's like, here, you can make your dinner. I'll be back. I'll see you later. I don't know. We'll figure it out. And I'm not. Judging the mom for that, you know, it's, it's, she's a single mom, she's running around, she's trying to save her kid, she's got a really busy job. But that kid, that's just how that kid was raised. And I do think it's interesting that like, that's kind of the two levels of this story. It's like, we're investigating this past kid who was, you know, really seriously abused, like murdered by her own parents, you know, in the the novel, she also like was raped by her doctor winds up dying, like getting infected with smallpox, all of this stuff happens to Sadako in the book. But, the, but to research Sadako, she does have to leave her kid alone. And she, you know, is with her, like, ex-husband. And I almost feel like she and her ex-husband aren't that good at keeping, you know, things alive. They're just, like, they're they're only good in staying together when they're trying to, like, prevent death or something. Like, they're right. more linked by this tragedy than they are linked by, like, actually loving the kid. Or being around yes. him or spending
3: any time yeah. with him. but I think with that, you know... I think that that is something that parents wrestle with, too. Like the eternal guilt of like, am I there enough? Am I not there enough? What's happening when I'm not there? I mean, you can read a lot into the idea of like modern parenting forces you to be away from your child to provide. And the only way you can be around your child more is by being exorbitantly wealthy and having the ability to or, you know, it's it's tricky. It's like, how do you like I think it's it's this idea that we we've, we've come from a culture where like family has been so important. If you want to look back at like Tokyo story, like how the family was kind of surrounded. Everyone was there together and we've all moved away from that. Like we've all moved away from this idea, like even the idea of like giving birth and you have a child like, you know, you were supposed to go into a community where you were taken care of. And now you're, you know, if, you know, you have smaller groups of friends, if you can't afford a nanny, uh, you have, you know, it's a lot more on your shoulders. There's a lot of stuff about parenting and, and losing like who your kids could be or not recognizing what they're doing that I think maybe could be in here. I don't know. I think there's something about a child exacting revenge on adults that didn't understand them that I think is at the root of something very interesting and i think it can play upon an adult sensibility of oh my god i hope i'm not that to my kids it's like you know it's like everyone jokes like well my kids will go to therapy for that but it's like oh what if my kids become this vengeful ghost i mean no it's a a far (laughs) uh, far jump but i think that there is something that you know it's a take on modern parenting
2: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: Part of what I wish I understood better is, like, in the late 90s, what did it mean in Japan to be a divorced single mom? Mm -hmm. You know, was that even more like extra unacceptable than it is here in the States?
3: Well, but do you think it's like also like, is it okay to be an independent woman? Or are you supposed to be like, well, I need to be a homemaker?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of why I'm going down this mental track is just like when I'm thinking about the differences the American version had to make to change that character... They made her more outrageous in a way that I, I feel like they're almost trying to translate to us how outrageous that character was in Japan. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, like we still don't have a ton of characters in our Hollywood movies. not even in the 90s where it's like, I never married that guy, but I had his baby. Like, it's weird how rarely that comes up in our movies, despite oh, yeah. how frequently that seems to come up in real life. And so it felt like that's almost the 90s. It was like, I didn't even marry the guy. I just boned him and had his baby. And like, I'm trying to figure out what that context was for her. Because yeah, like I, if it was sort of default back on her heels, like, oh, we're not even used to seeing a single mom in these movies. That's fascinating.
3: I think we're just wrestling with this idea of like what the past expects of us, but what the now is saying is possible. Right. And, and I think we always wrestle with that. I I wrestle with that as a parent, like the idea, like, should I be home more? There's moments where like, you know, when I look at certain things, I look at it through the eyes of like, well, how can I be with my family? How can I afford to be back here as much as I can? If I take a job that takes me out of there, same thing with June, like it's a conversation, like it's, it's a weird balance. How do you balance your own personal happiness? So you actually bring that into the family and enlighten them, but also provide and be it's, there's so many things that you're wrestling with. And I think the end I think the end is actually very hopeful because what she does do is she saves this child, even though it doesn't fix anything like she researches it. She gives like that, that child voice in the sense that I, I put that to bed. Somebody else didn't do it. Somebody else killed this woman as child. I'm going to make it better, even though it's, you know, um, and it, and I think it's very intentional why she's in the well and, and i think that the end of the yeah. movie is until
1: she gets to the well i'm kind of screaming like why is she the one dragging up the heavy buckets man that seems uh, <laughs> exhausting
3: well you know she like you know i think i think it was uh, you know again a role reversal masculine and feminine role reversal like she's like you know what yeah. he's like i'll go down there i'll do the scary job and she's like oh, i'll do it but uh, i mean
1: I, I guess it makes sense like in the book too we should say like in the book um the genders totally reverse and it's like that character is a dad trying to save their their daughter Anyway, Mm -hmm. and so, like, in the—and actually, in the book, like, the whole relationship is, like, he's a journalist. It's his little girl who's also watched the tape. And they're still pals with Ruji, but Ruji's just, like, his buddy, and he's, like, a total creep. Like, he's, like, always joking about rape and stuff like that. Um, And then they flipped it around to have it be, like, a a single mom here, which I think is, like, such an interesting choice. But, yeah, like, she's in that well. And she has this moment with with Sadako when she, like, emerges from the water— and I just want to listen to the music for a second because it's so romantic and tender in a way that I think the movie doesn't show us ever getting to be with her own son. She's able to have this moment of like affection that she doesn't get with her with her actual child. I mean, that's dark if they're really going there.
3: But I think that that's the healing. Like the Sadako is standing in for her child by saving Sadako. She's saving her relationship with her child. And from here on in. She will never take that for granted again. You know, she's pushing it away. She's going to be more invested. Doesn't mean that she's going to stop being, you know, I mean, again, if we're looking at the metaphor of it, I think it's like sometimes you need a fear or a mistake to make you realize I need to change the way I'm doing things. And, and I feel like that's what she, I feel like the end is her, not just pushing off the tape on another person because she, you know, is trying to live a longer life. But I think at the end is saying, I learned from my mistake and I know how to fix my mistake. You know, I don't think it was maybe intentional that they needed to make, like 12 sequels to this or three sequels in Japan and three sequels here. Like, I I think it, you know, um, I think the story seemingly is a lot more based in culture and and it's a ghost story that's illuminating something uh, deeper about our society. Where the other ones, I think, are just a horror movie.
1: I guess that's why it makes sense that like, then it it is coming. If they're trying to say something about modernity, then I guess it makes sense that this is coming in the form of a VHS tape. I'll, you know that it's like a modern symbol, even though it feels kind of old now. I feel like in 1998, they almost could have had a DVD. Maybe had a DVD. Maybe they had more DVDs in Japan than they had in the states. Could have been like it's super modern. But I don't know. Her putting stuff on a modern DVD just sounds like way too much for me. Even though this is a film that I think you know, every so often is like, yeah, we're from we're from the '90s. We got this hip electronic music in the soundtrack. One of the interesting things about Ringu is because this movie was, because the story was already really well-known. It had already been like a TV movie after it was a bestseller. This, that it was familiar enough to audiences that for extra promotion, they released Ring and, and a sequel to Ring in the exact same year. Uh, the sequel was called like Spiral. And the story in that one though is, is Which is, is also dark. based on the book. Yeah. But it takes away all the hope that we're talking about. Cause like mm-hmm. in Spiral, it, It's basically like a friend of Ryuji's from their school uh, starts getting really interested in this case, starts researching it himself, starts dating his like goth girlfriend. But part of what he finds out is that Reiko and her son are dead and they didn't make it. And that like, you know, Ryuji Mm. made a copy. The copy isn't working. And so then this buddy is like, I'm going to do what Paul Shear thinks I should do and just like destroy all the tapes, except that I will get killed by it. And I'll I'll just get killed by it. It'll be fine. And this will end. But that doesn't, of course, actually happen. Uh, But one of my favorite sequels that does come out like right after this one is they do like a TV movie kind of sort of. Okay. Yeah. And in that one, part of the story is that this video is is a music video starring a pop star, and the pop star has died a tragic death. And so if you watch this last video from this pop star, you will die. It, the music is actually very, very funny. For the, Imagine The Ring trying to be a scary video, but also sounding like this. Song's kind of a banger. Would you
3: want that song to be the last thing you hear in your? Oh die? yeah, of course. I mean, totally. <laughs> uh, that's I love music so much. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question about this idea because again, I think that the best horror—and it's a broad statement—but I will say it anyway—is standalone films, right? Once you try to sequelize it, I think it's you. It's like, well, you're telling a variation of the story and, and you try to like push it in different directions. And I think sometimes it just gets hard to capture that original fear. And I'm thinking back about, you know, another movie we talked about and the similarities between that movie and this movie, which is Blair Witch Project and the sequels of the Blair Witch Project had. think one of the things that was so cool about the Blair Witch Project is it's not a terrifying movie until it is in the end, the same way that this movie is. They're very similar films. And and The Blair Witch, I'm trying to figure out when The Blair Witch came out. You know, Blair Witch uh, this, came out... At this
1: same time, basically.
3: Okay, yeah, 1999. Yeah. You know, so, like, the idea of this new... Like, like, horror... Like, horror is changing here. I know we talked a lot about Blair Witch maybe being on the list and not being on the list and what it represented, but I do think that what it represents is we're going away from slashers and we're going more into like, what is it really like to fear or feel like you are going to die? Right. That's the real feel because like the slasher movies became like, Oh, it's almost fun to watch these people get killed and run around and whatever, you know, but it's, this is much more the terror of the looming, the looming sense that something is going to happen. And, and like, and you, as a movie watcher, you're on the edge of your seat. When, when is it going to happen? You don't know. And that's why when that girl comes out of the TV at the end, you're like, oh my fucking God, even though I've seen it and I've seen it parodied, I've seen it on prank shows. I've never seen this movie. It still is scary. It is still like watching Jaws for the first. I was like, oh shit. Like, yeah, that is, you know, it, it still works. But I think this idea that Can it edge you? Can you be edged for like 90 minutes and wait for the last five to actually pay off? When we've been watching a movie where it's like, why isn't the first kill happening in the first 10 minutes? You know, like what's going on? You know, and this is much more about you're living in the emotional space of characters and and in a technically a real world.
1: I mean, I have to say the weakness here for me is I feel like I don't really live in the emotional space of the character. Mm. I I don't really feel her fear. I don't know. I I don't know if it's maybe something in like the performance, the way it's delivered. I feel like her her emotions don't so much build or like invite me into feeling how she's feeling. You know, they sort of they kind of just like go up and down to me. They feel more like a speaker. You know, like they like there's okay remember the scene where they like go to the kind of um I don't know I'm going to call it a vacation house even though it isn't they're like staying in kind of the cabin where part of like the mystery first happened Um, and they're like they see the window you know or the the mirror for the first time and like okay we know where we are and they're sitting down and they're having dinner and they have an argument even though this argument is in Japanese I think you can just even hear in her delivery how it doesn't feel like her emotions build it just feels like now I'm supposed to yell (laughs)
2: <laughs> and I guess that
1: takes me a little bit out of this movie. Like, I I can't... Ugh. I mean, I guess it's fair. Like, if I knew that something was going to kill me in seven days, I would probably feel all over the place myself.
3: Well, I mean, I guess... But, I guess... Are, this maybe I'm I'm jumping here to say, I don't want to come across in any way culturally insensitive, but I would say is that a more of a cultural thing, like a little bit more of a repressed emotion. You know, I think that like you know when you think about cultures that keep emotions, and I think you could think of like uh, Japan and and the UK, like you know are known for being a little bit more reserved. So is that, like, are we missing that nuance as Americans? Or, or am I, you know, am I just, like, trying to make a, an answer for that? I don't know. But that's how I, that's how I kind of saw it. I had, to, I had to understand, like, culturally, even watching Tokyo Story, there are things here that feel a little different than I would, than I would be because, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a smaller internal thing. But you're saying you don't even feel that she's feeling it.
1: Yeah, I want to be open to that. But I honestly feel like maybe she's not that great of an actress. <laughs>
3: you okay, know what yeah. I mean? Okay, sure.
1: Like, because like, I, I get so much more dread from the teenagers at the beginning. I feel like that those performances feel really good. I feel like actually the teenagers at the beginning are even better than the teenagers in the, the American remake. And those are good, you know, they're good performers. It's like Amber Tamblyn. It, actually, the American remake, the teenagers are having even more leaning into this idea of like technology. It's technology that's killing us. I hate television. Gives me headaches. You know, I heard
0: there's so many magnetic waves traveling through the air because of TV and telephones. They were losing like 10 times as many brain cells as we're supposed to. Like,
2: all the molecules in our heads are all unstable. All the companies know about it, but they're not doing anything about
1: it. It's like a big conspiracy. (sighs) You can pick something, I don't care. I don't know, I don't believe those kids as real teenagers as much as I believe the Japanese performers. I feel like they're, they feel more honest to me. There's just something about this actress, I feel like maybe also... The music underneath it. No, I mean, look, look, it doesn't really build to me. Yeah.
3: I just want to say to you, you're totally right. I mean, she only has won the Best Actress award at the (laughs) Japanese Television Drama Academy six times. You know, it's not. You know, she might not be pulling her weight. You know, only six times to win Best Actress is at a certain point. You got to say, are you really bringing the heat?
1: you know now i feel like googling our own actors who have won best actor and
3: you know i mean but, and, I, you know, she's won more awards for best seen... female actress and the dra- uh
1: uh-huh. has <laughs> it t- never no. happened that we've had a really good actor in a no, terrible I'm, movie
3: no but you know what you know what you know it actually is really interesting though it seems to me um that she does a lot more of like tv dramas and i'm looking here and it again i could be incredibly wrong So uh, this is where the top notch research that I do comes into play. Um, I think that she does a lot of daytime drama, which, you know, might be something that you are feeling. But I don't know. I don't know. know? So
1: like it's Susan
3: Lucci. I mean, you said it, not me. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It was. She has been on one of the highest rated Japanese dramas of all time in which she won Best Female Actress and uh, the show won Best Drama. I mean, but she's so she's worked, I guess. You're right. And so maybe you're saying that like she's not working good enough for you.
1: I'm just not feeling like I'm on her interior journey in this movie.
3: And you you see, and and by the way, I don't disagree with you. I chalked that up to a cultural disconnect. And I also uh, felt like, oh there are certain things that I can't like get, I can't get certain nuance in subtitles, or maybe it's harder for me to get like that because I'm not like watching their face as much as I should be. Or, you know, I don't know. Again, I, I made excuses for it, but I definitely did feel what you were saying.
1: Yeah. I guess I felt like there was a part, probably an hour into this movie where I was like, I just need Sadako to show up and start killing some people because I'm getting very, very restless watching these people drive around well, it's straight and look a microfilm.
3: Yeah. But you know what? Like, I mean, I think you could make a similar argument in a way. I mean, look, I actually think, you know, we talked about the Blair Witch Project, like what's acting, what's not acting? Is she too much? Is she too little? Like what people said, you know, there's, there Is are she similar. She's
1: perfect? I believe she's perfect.
3: Yeah. I mean, and look, I'm just saying, but I think that there's a lot of, You know, you're wrestling with these people because I think you're capturing them. And the movie is very grounded. And I think that I could see the director of this movie saying. Like, let's play this like you are afraid of death and you and and, 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 like, and what does that do to you? And maybe the choice is like, I'm frozen. I'm not having any emotion because I'm like, I don't even know where I am.
1: I mean, I could see that maybe being one of the directions. Sure. It does feel like.
3: Well, let's ask her. She's right here. Come on on the show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it does feel like, I mean, even if, even the title, I think kind of makes this point, you know, talking about like rings, rings, circling around, stuff like that. I do feel like this is trying to circle around and recorrect where horror was, you know, post slasher nightmares, everybody getting killed post-horror just devolving into, like, Freddy versus Jason, blah, 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 which is funny because then, like, the ring winds up devolving into, like, Sadako versus Kayako, you know, the the, um, killer mom from The Grudge. I don't really like The Grudge films either, to be honest, but um, but, yeah, like, it feels like this is trying, this is almost like a proto-ripple of what you know 824 wants to do later. I feel like the, I feel like Ringu feels like Elevated horror announcing itself. We're not going to have the gore. We're going to have more psychology, and I can imagine how refreshing that would have felt in nineteen ninety eight. Yes. But now I feel like I want a little more from this. Like you're restrained. But think about it but in nineteen ninety eight. Something.
3: But I think in nineteen ninety eight, looking at this, and this is my reason why I didn't put Blair Witch on the list. I don't know how great it ages, but I do think it pushed the genre forward, right? And I think that there's two things about that that can be true, which is like you can flip a genre and and push it in a direction that creates some of the best horror that we've had of recent memory, but not be the perfect example of it. It's like you inspire everyone to go do it and they do better than you because you had the inkling to get to this part. And I feel like these two movies in conversation with each other are interesting. I think they, they do do that. I don't think th- I agree with you. I don't think this is like a perfect movie. I think the story is pretty perfect. Uh, I think the end is a little like, Ugh, you know, but, um, I'm, I'm impressed with the simplicity of the story. But the same way like in Halloween, a simple story, it's like Jamie Lee Curtis is carrying a lot of that movie on her, on her shoulders. Her likability, her connection to that. And I think that we connected to that so you feel more connected to Halloween. I think here we're not connecting to her. And so the movie suffers potentially from where it could actually be because it's a little bit disconnected.
1: Yeah, totally. Like, I don't feel that protectiveness of her. -hmm. I I really want to feel that protectiveness. I really, really do. I feel like that would make me feel more engaged with this movie. And yes, even not loving this movie, I really expected to love this movie on a rewatch because I remember when I finally saw it being like, oh, wow, that was great. That was fascinating. And I was like excited to watch this movie again. And feeling so restless startled me. I appreciate that this jumped in and was like, you know, we need n- more novelty in our horror films than just, like, guys jumping out and stabbing people. We need intelligence. We need deduction. And maybe I'm realizing I don't find deduction that interesting in a horror movie. Because whenever it just gets into the plot, I'm like, I don't care. Like, I really I really have such a hard time caring about this plot. And I will say, to the original Ring's credit, the mystery of this one is at least a lot better than, like, the American remake that they did. Because, like, the, the mystery of... The article character in the American remake, her name is like Samara. It involves like horses. It's really complicated. It's too complicated. Wait, Samara's a horse girl? Yeah. In America, Samara's like, well, she hates the horses. They're too loud. Like, Brian Cox is like the evil dad in this one. Uh, But I just, I think maybe there's just a core of me right now that's in a mood where I just don't like solving mysteries in my movies. And I just don't, I don't think it's very interesting. And I feel like once you start down this path plot-wise of being like, okay, well, this connects to this, and here's that volcano, and oh, I magically recognize this volcano, and blah, 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 blah. Then I start feeling like, oh, this is a thing that can be solved, and or I guess you're just going to solve it now.
3: It felt like a podcast episode, and I, but I yeah. also understand this is like why podcasts blew up too. Um You know, it's like, we want that. We want to search out these mysteries. We want to self-solve, you know, like we want to open up cold cases. Like this is a a cultural thing that we've really embraced. Uh, Blair Witch is that too. Let's figure out who this Blair Witch is, or not, I don't think she's called Blair Witch, but uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, but it's like, we want to, we want, to get our hands dirty and we want to go as close to the flame as we can and the idea being like maybe we'll get burned but you don't really think you're going to get burned and then when you get burned you're like oh fuck I got burned oh shit what did I do and I think that that's like kind of you know our culture is in that direction and I think we've done it a lot better yeah
1: that feels like it's expressed so well, I think, in the in the ex-husband character. Because he really is mm-hmm. like, I don't take this seriously. He's like the last person to really start to take it seriously. And he's the one who
3: dies. So I do appreciate that about it, for sure. But I guess, you know, what we're saying is, it's a movie that's incredibly simple. And it leaves a lot to the viewer to kind of put their own thoughts into. Like, what is it saying? Is it saying that stuff about parenting? Is it saying the stuff about technology? Is it saying, just like... This is a fucking scary concept, you know, like yeah. whatever you want to do, like what can you take you, from it? And I, yeah. yeah.
1: You know what and I think, wish it was saying? Cause I think yeah. like there's a little glint of this in it. I feel like it starts to be a movie about how, how stories get started in a culture. You know, there's mm. kind of talking about that. Like, here's how a story builds. Somebody tells you this and then it, it it expands and expands and expands. And I find that to be like a really interesting idea. Like how does a story get embedded in the public consciousness? And I'm going to use, you know, I'll use two horrible examples for this, but they are the ones that I think of when I think about how wild stories start to exist. When we did our Halloween episode, I remember. I remember that, like, I remember the first time I heard the name Jamie Lee Curtis was when I was in elementary school, and somebody in my elementary oh, school. I know exactly was like, what you're going to say. You do, yes, you do. You do. I grew up in Texas. All right, and you, you know, and you grew up all the way in the north, but you knew this story, Jamie Lee Curtis. Was a hermaphrodite? This was the story of like my elementary school. That's where I learned what hermaphrodite even was. I didn't even know.
3: Well, and I just, that and Richard Gere.
1: Uh, yes, Richard Gere in the Gerbil. Yes, you that know, was the other one I was going to mention. I yeah. didn't even understand what that would be for. Like, but, but by the I, way, can I, I bring it up? Story?
3: Can I bring it up even more and say Slenderman?
1: Yeah, modern Slenderman, exactly. Like. How did how did you know that story and I know that story, living millions of miles apart? Well, okay, thousands of miles apart in an era before the internet. Like, I actually don't know how that happened because I as think a child. the
3: idea is we try, Like, we are a country that does like oral tradition. We started with oral tradition, right? Like, and it will go and move around. And um, I remember when I was a kid. The Jerky Boys tape was something that people passed around, and you would copy somebody else's Jerky Boys tape, and then you would give it to somebody else, and everyone, and this is before the Jerky Boys (laughs) actually had, like, an official tape, but the, like, it was all, like, did you get the latest Jerky Boys thing, and that was, like, it was so funny, but it was a pass around, it was, like, a time of mixtapes, it was a time of, like, um, you know, these stories of like, did you know what really happened? Why Darth Vader's in that suit? Like Darth Vader in that suit was always told to me, this is before there were Star Wars novelizations by Timothy Zahn and all this other stuff. Uh, This is like early on in Star Wars. He fell into a volcano. That was the idea. Like he (laughs) fell into a volcano and I do believe- Just like Shizuko, Exactly. But I think it's like, and then I think that that became part of the true story of Star Wars and it was actually then canonized. Right, because it was like, oh yeah, he fell in a volcano. I don't think that it was all that thought out. Maybe now I'm gonna have the ire of a Star Wars nerd and considering myself a Star Wars nerd, I'm gonna feel very embarrassed by that. But but I do believe that these things pass around because they sound good, they sound interesting. Ghost stories, the hook-handed man, uh, you know, escape from the mental institution, the car drove away, and all you saw was the hook on the doorknob, you know, all that shit. Like people wanna tell stories. And I think that good stories travel. And I think sensational stories travel and podcasts have now taken over that part of storytelling. It's I like, mean, did you know Adnan? Actually, the the cell towers didn't do this and that. Oh, I heard this podcast said that Robert Wagner actually pushed her overboard. You know, it's like, it we are, podcasts are the new stories that we can share around the table. But the the thing is, is just going out to a wider medium.
1: Oh, I I get that. I get that. I just really, really want to know The logistics that, like, like was it like a chain of people going to the same summer camp in the '80s? No, I think like like, those kids like
3: dispersed. It's like I could get happen, but it's like you tell someone, you tell someone, you tell someone, you tell someone. It's like it's like it's the spreading of a virus. You know, all you need is one person to pass it to one person, then that person passes it one to person. You know, the line just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Like you don't have to think of it as like everyone was together at a camp and then they all took planes to different parts of the country. I think that like word spreads, you know, word spreads quick. Um, yeah. And I know what you're saying it's amazing. It's impossible. And how did that even happen? It feels but,
1: impossible to me. It feels impossible, even though I know it happened.
3: I, I know. But I think it. I think you're underestimating the notion of gossip and sensationalism. And it's like we live in a culture where now that stuff is given full Page ads. It's like, oh, I heard that you know, so and so's nanny actually got a text message that said so-and-so. Now we have full like the Daily Mail will print up those text messages. Do moi is that. I heard so-and-so did this and that. And that's why these things are like so popular, is because we are like we are tuned, we lean in, we wanna know. We wanna know the sneaky thing that and I know what you're saying, it's still impressive, and now internet makes it a way easier. But I do think before the internet. It was like, oh, I get on the phone with somebody. I don't even have to leave the house. Oh, did you hear this thing about Richard Gere? Oh, yeah, who made it up? I don't know who made it up. You know, um, but that would right. be fun. You know.
1: Well, I wonder if it was in a, if it if it was passed around adults first and then went to kids. Was it going from adult to kid to adult to kid? I don't know. I, I, but, but, right. We have a whole we have a whole way of talking about this. You know, you could say that the ring, this VHS tape, is the first viral video. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a virus that gets around in video form and mm-hmm. kills people. And I do love this parallel of this film being prescient. I mean, because now when I think of somebody going viral, I'm like, oh, no, a viral video will destroy your life. And here it's just like literally destroying lives, well, chewing yeah. people up left and right.
3: And, and you know what I think it is, too? Like, I mean, there's this other idea, too. We live in a culture where we can still make up fake shit like rainbow fentanyl. Right? Like, you know, like that's not a thing, but it just popped out. Remember that the, the thing like Oprah had people on her show about like um the blowjob rainbow where yes, girls put rainbow on Rainbow dip- parties. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was just
1: thinking of. I remember hearing that and being like, that seems complicated and gross.
3: So, you know, there well, yeah, very. Um, but I just think that uh it's just urban legends, these are the stories and uh, and you know, the way like I, I read an article one time that said like the Richard Gear one in particular started in 84. And apparently it was like, Oh, it was just a gay man and a mouse. And then over the years that gay man became Richard Gere and then the mouse became a gerbil. And then it was, you know, for a second, it was like a Cleveland Browns linebacker and then a Philadelphia newscaster and then a weatherman. Uh, and then, there was just this idea and why I kept on coming back to Richard Gere was like, I think this idea was like, there was a fear, like a homophobia, right? And, you know, and like, like well, but Richard Gere is, you know, like he, you know, he doesn't seem, he's, he's not, he wasn't closeted. Like, was a, what is that? But it's like, oh, well, he was gay on a Broadway play and he got divorced twice. So he had to be gay. Like, I think that there is just... This thing, because Richard Gere was asked multiple times, like, are you gay? And he's like, I won't answer that question. You know, cosmically, he said there's like, cosmically, there's nothing wrong with being heterosexual, homosexual, omnisexual. The accusation is meaningless. And whether it's true or false is nobody's business. What difference does it make what anyone thinks if I live truthfully and honestly and with an open heart? And like, I think that that all of a sudden, like you're like, that's a very progressive answer to this question. And all of a sudden, well, he's gay. Uh, the gay guy put a butt rat up his butt, you know. So it's like I just think it's interesting, like how that stuff kind of goes.
1: Well, yeah, and I love that answer that he gave, and that's why I am I am deeply, deeply annoyed that when I think of the name Richard Gere, Gerbil is one of the first words in my mind. 100%. Same thing with Jamie Lee Curtis. I am so mad on their behalf that this is what that I, that like. I still feel like my brain has to disprove this lie because that's how I first heard about them.
3: Well, let me tell you one other thing about this Richard Gere gerbil story, because just to go down this rabbit hole a little bit more, a lot of people think there's one celebrity responsible for the Richard Gere story. Do you know who that is? No. Sylvester Stallone. What? Apparently, Sylvester Stallone and Richard Gere had a very famous grudge on the Lords of Flatbush. And people say that, like, Stallone might have heard that story that was going around, And then started to attach uh, Richard Gere's name to it in a way to kind of slight him. And you think of somebody like Stallone, who is, you know, as a hand, you know, oh, my gosh, Stallone told me Richard Gere put a gerbil up his butt. You know, it's like it's it's the rumor mill, like in a crazy way. Like, it's pretty crazy to me. You know, it's, it's interesting.
1: You would think Stallone would be more empathetic. Everybody's been talking about how he started his career in softcore or maybe hardcore. And he's
3: like, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's. Who it's uh, well,
1: but all of this like adds kind of a dimension to like a parody of, of Ring that shows up in um, Scary Movie 3. Do you remember that movie?
3: I do, indeed. I do, indeed.
1: Like, Scary Movie 3 parodies Ring. Well, it's really kind of parodying the Naomi Watts one, because that just come out the year before. But it parodies it the whole way through, and it kind of gets into this idea of viral video. Like, in its opening scene about two girls in a room talking about watching this video, the girl, the voices you're about to hear are Jenny McCarthy and Pam Anderson. And it is Pam Anderson Uh, who carries the subtext of this scene. I know something even
0: scarier. What? You heard about this videotape? The one where they do it on the boat? And then in the car? And then in the bathtub? And he's like, hey baby, I love you. And she's like, where are we? And did you see this? No, not that tape. Oh, the one with all the scary images. After you watch the tape, the phone rings and this really scary voice comes on. and says you're going to die in like seven days. Yeah, I saw that one with Josh last weekend. You're with Josh last weekend? <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> oh, no, yes, I was!
1: <laughs> we just had that whole Pam <laughs> and Tommy uh, yeah. series that, that came out last year, which I actually really liked a lot. I thought it was really good. But talking about the damage that tape did, that viral video did, To gets into
3: people's hands. I mean, that's the thing. Shit gets around, whether it's Ray J and Kim Kardashian, and whether or not you want to say who is responsible for the leaking of that tape, shit gets out there. Like you can get access to it. This is before, like you're saying, it's before, it's the time of I'm making a dub of it. I'm giving it to you. I'm passing it to you. You get to borrow it for the weekend. I'm giving it to somebody else. You know, there is this end, you know, that this is a country that is desperate for getting some looks on stuff. And that's why, you know, as a culture, we've just embraced that more and more and more, clickbait. Like, what celebrities look disgusting now? You know, it's like, and the truth is, it's like, we're going to click on that because we want to know and we want to tell other people about it. Did you know I saw a picture of so-and-so and and he looks so fucking weird? You know, it's like, like, there is a whole thing I just read about a famous actress that you haven't seen in a long time. And look, even me, who I thought the article was terrible. I did share it with my wife and said, did you see this? It's not because I want to make fun of it. It's just because I'm like that. Wow. I think I know what you're talking about. And that story
1: became so weird that one of my friends who knows that person very well had reporters in front of her house. Like, do you want to comment on pictures of this? Wow. And that's just, that's so wrong on so many levels. Um, but, but yeah, like then to this point, Okay, so then if we go to the logic of what we're thinking about how this tape exists, which is like Sadako puts like, it's not it's not supposed to come from like a handy cam. It's not a camera. It's not a snuff video. Mm-hmm. It's like Sadako putting her like psychic images on this tape. It's like when
3: a basketball player grabs the ball before they like uh, do the tip off just to put their mojo on it.
1: Yeah, just to put your mojo on it. But okay, but so this tape then is really staticky and like scratchy and stuff. Are those scratches her... Her psychology? Is it that her psychology is scratchy? Or are those scratches on the tape because it's been copied so many times? Is it a a hint about how many times this tape has been passed around?
3: Well, I think that that's the best part about the movie is like, it does make sense that, oh, yeah, this has been a tape that's been, you know, pushed around a, a bunch of times. I like that. I like that idea.
1: Oh, it's so creepy. Wait, I know. Well, also, just to lighten the mood, your good buddy also parodied a uh, parodied ring in Scary Movie Three. Regina Hall in this scene that she did with Anna Faris. Oh come on,
0: Cindy. The news is on. Another little white girl that fell down the well. Fifty black people get their ass beat by police today, but the whole world got to stop for one little whitey down the hole. <laughs> Honestly,
3: I love those two actresses. I, they I are I the, the best. The, the Scary Movie <laughs> franchise went downhill when they left. And I will say that they elevated everything in that Scary Movie franchise. I think the only reason why it's successful in three is getting a little rocky. But the first the first one is especially great. And, the, and Regina is so great. And it's, yeah.
1: Yeah, very much. And also, you are so right. There are like a bazillion prank shows that have used this idea of like, the ring girl climbing out of the television. I pulled this one where you can hear just people losing their minds. The setup is that all of these people are in like a TV store, looking at TVs, shopping, seeing what's on sale. And then one of the TV screens kind of slides back when they're not looking and Sadako emerges.
3: What do you think about the, uh, the picture following? She looks like she's going to jump out. She looks like she's going to jump out? More definition.
0: Like she's right there. Like she's right there? Yeah. I
2: mean, why?
3: why? why? I'm just going to I... And that, and by the way, that's the first time I ever was introduced to The Ring. That show. Literally, that show.
1: You know, wait, now that I'm thinking about it, this is fascinating. Because I would say that most people in the States are probably a lot more familiar with the Naomi Watts version of this. But yet, I think to us, the character's name, Sadako. The name Samara never took off, even if that's the movie people have seen. Do you think that's fair? I think that's a fair I statement. I do, I yeah, do, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I wonder how that happened. We're like, we'll take the name... But we will uh, ignore, we'll ignore the the name that like we gave her in the States. That's,
3: I don't know. I buy it. I buy it.
1: I buy it. I buy it. They. All, I mean, I don't know. What? I don't love creepy crawling girl trope. Honestly, I think
3: part of. I like it. It's creepy as shit. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I like it here. I feel like I haven't seen it done any other type than like sometimes on the wall and like vampire movies. But, uh, but no, I I, I I, 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 this is scary as shit. I love it.
1: It really scares you? I can't get scared by it. Like, I get grossed out by the hair. I mean, I do think, like, the idea of wet hair on you is one of the worst sensations.
3: It's, to me, what's so scary about it is it's, like, it's formless. It's, like, uh, it's, like, is it human? Is it animal? Is it? It just seems dangerous to me. And it just doesn't seem human. It's, like, oh, it's almost like an animal in human skin or something like that. I, I don't know. It's just creepy. I can't even understand why, but I like it.
1: It's so weird. I mean, part of, like, the whole history of these, like, you know, the, in Japan, these kind of ghosts are called, like, onryo. They're, like, women who are avenging themselves as ghosts after their death. Like, the hair is such a big part of the story. Like, there's this one version of the onryo story from, like, the medieval era where this husband finds his wife dead. And even though she's a skeleton, she still has all her hair on her skeleton it attached to it. Oh, the, so upsetting. Yeah. And so the husband... Like starts to ride her corpse around by grabbing <laughs> onto her hair. He's like grabbing her by the hair and riding her dead body. And I mean, part of like part of the reason these characters wear white is because it's a traditional burial outfit to be buried in like a white gown. So that's. What but we, like, she was situation. killed. But she was killed, and she what was she just in her hospital gown? Is it a her up in I hospital? I don't know. God knows. I don't know.
3: So Amy, obviously, you know this movie is a cult phenomenon, but when it comes out, our or is it even on the American radar? Or, or is it really on the American radar when the remake comes out?
1: Everybody reviewed Ringu very highly. They're like, we love it. We love it. We love it. It took me a long time to find the one negative review. And the one negative review came from Empire Magazine. This is what they said. The Japanese have, have always been a rum lot, film-wise. I don't know what rum lot means. Um, maybe somebody else does. Uh, in the Land of the Rising Sun, for example, in 1982, E.T. was beaten in the box office stakes by Faces of Death a compilation of real-life and fake gruesome deaths. It's equally hard to see how this bog-standard horror offering has ignited the box office over there. The plot centers around a mysterious videotape circulating in which odd blurry images are followed by a phone call announcing that a week the viewer will be dead. They invariably are. Then he goes into the plot for a little bit, and then he says, this gets throttled by its over-complexity, the duff plotting, and a distinct lack of actual action. I don't know what duff plotting means either. There's a I'm realizing I don't know a lot of British slang, but it's a rum lot with duff plotting. So I guess he just uses alcohol metaphors.
3: Okay, I guess so. Yeah.
1: But anyway, yeah. Very short review, his main thing was just like he thinks it's way too complex and dull and there's not enough action and I would say I kind of agree.
3: I I'm I'm there. I mean, look, I like this movie. I enjoyed watching it. I didn't love it. I thought that the last 30 minutes were way better than the beginning. Uh, It took it a while to kind of get going. Uh, But it's not like, to me, it's not like a top, tippy top favorite, but I appreciated a lot of it. And I was creeped out at the end. I was creeped out.
1: I'm glad you were creeped out. I wish I had been more creeped out.
3: But it's my my first time seeing it. I don't know if I'd ever rewatch it.
1: You know what is interesting is like, if you let a year go by and I forgot what happened in the ring and then you said what happens in the ring, I would say, oh, there's probably Sadako. She creeps out and like runs around and scares everybody. And that really doesn't happen. I'm realizing like my memory of this is almost like the memory of The Bride of Frankenstein, where like the actual star, the only thing that you really think of when you think about that movie emerges at the end. You know, yeah, that was always my disappointment to me when I first watched The Bride of Frankenstein is like there's no bride. And then she shows up and then it ends. And that's kind of how I feel about this one. I know Bride of Frankenstein is still a really good movie, but the thing you remember about it is not in that movie very much.
3: I agree with that, too. And that's a a perfect example of this idea of the mummification of these movies. Like we start to love the idea behind them, And that's probably why you love Hellraiser. So, Amy, (laughs) uh, you know, that is
1: why I like this scene in the cabin of the woods where like they make fun of this whole trope. And it's really just who is it? Richard Jenkins yelling like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Nine times at the ghost lady from Japan.
2: Fuck
3: you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. You seeing this?
0: Perfect record, huh? Japan
2: crew should have had this in the bag. They fucked us. How hard is it to kill nine-year-olds?
0: Zero fatality. Total loss. I'm telling
3: you, you want good product, you
0: got to buy American.
3: Ah, I love that. Now, Amy, we're going to change our trajectory a little bit, and we're going to celebrate a very special anniversary uh, and that anniversary is of James Bond. You know, James Bond is going through a big anniversary this year. This is its 60th anniversary. And we thought it was time for us to do some James Bond. And, you know, it's interesting in talking to people about James Bond, because I think you grow up with your James Bond. Uh, you know your James Bond. Like for me, I uh, Roger Moore is my first introduction to him. And then I came back and found Connery some people are finding Daniel Craig. Some people are finding, you know, uh, Pierce Brosnan. And obviously a lot of people found Timothy Dalton. Um, but, uh, but I would say that probably the most iconic Bond movie is Goldfinger. And that might be the place for us to start to take a look at James Bond. I mean, what do you think?
1: I like that. I agree. Like, Goldfinger, I feel like, is where James Bond really becomes the James Bond where we know we, we, yes. it's the first time where he orders his martini. So, yeah, let's do Goldfinger.
3: I, I If I was to make a ranking of Sean Connery movies, I think I might put From Russia With Love before that one. But I also think that Goldfinger has more of the elements, the full package, like you said, of James Bond. So we'll, we'll kind of break it all down. I'm excited to go back to 1964 to see where James Bond really kind of clicked in on a, in a bigger way and propelled us from the 60s all the way, I mean, to the 2020s and, and seemingly beyond after this Amazon deal. So uh, take a listen to this trailer of Goldfinger. You can get Goldfinger wherever you get your movies, people. Uh, You could check them out in all the different places. Uh, And you could also check out your free library services that allow you to download digital media on your device and tablets. All that good stuff. So, Amy, next week, let's get our martinis shaken, not stirred, and pull out your lasers because we're going to cut off some dicks. (laughs) If you like... Listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, our theme songs by Michael Cassidy, Kim Troxel Dissolve, our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon, or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up to the minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Sheer discord where we host a very exclusive unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out pod swag for exclusive merch, get back episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test. If you subscribe to Stitcher premium and check out the official API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list at unspooledpod.com.